Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. We are celebrating our seven years on the air tonight. We got a great show for everybody. Rudy Sarzo's on the show tonight. Chris Caffery. And first up, Ian Gregg from Torch. Uh, it's getting late over there in Sweden, so we're going to connect Ian right now. Hopefully, we'll be able to do this with no trouble. It always seems like we have a problem when this happens, but let's give it a shot here. So just bear with me for one second. We'll dig this up over here. All right, we got to go look for that name now. Uh, that is always a problem, right? Let me see here. No, we don't find it there. I apologize, everybody. Just give me a second. There's always an issue with Skype, it seems. Add people to the call. Uh, if we do that, that won't work. That won't work. That won't work. That won't work. I do apologize here. We're trying to figure it out. Let me get Tommy on the line right now. Tay, what's going on? Tay. Yo. Well, what's happened there? Hey, happy anniversary, brother. Thank you, thank you. I'm I'm trying to connect Ian from Torch, but his name's not showing up on the Skype list. Oh, I hate when Let that me, happens. I know. Let me see if I just call him. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know what? You have to you have to accept a friend request to, to make a phone call. Oh, I see. And he says he did, but I don't see it on here, uh, which means I can't connect him. If I do, I don't think anybody will hear it but you and I. Uh, let me see if I could do it like this. Let's see if that works. If you call your current call, you would be put on hold. No, so we don't want that. Hmm. I don't know how to connect them here, then. Very difficult. Very difficult. Hmm. How else right? Uh, Sweden. Sweden. Add to list. Let me see. Add to list. I apologize, everybody. We're just trying to work here. So now it says add people. Let's see if his name comes up that way. No, that don't work either. I know he's online because I see him. It's just that. Oh, he's in your chat room. Uh, no, I no. Uh, it tells you like if they're they're waiting for a phone call. Oh, I see. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I don't think he accepted the friend request. That's that's the whole thing. And if I dial him, we're going to get disconnected. See, that's the problem. Because then it would be like a private phone call. It wouldn't be a, a, like a three-way phone call. Yeah. That's the whole thing. All right, let me see if I can send... You know what? Let me see if I can send him a message on here. Oh, you know what? That, that might work, right? Yeah. Yeah, you never know. Worth a try. Yeah, anything's worth a try around here, you know. Uh, let me see. Yeah, you need to accept request. I cannot call you. That sounds simple enough, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll give that a shot. We'll see how it goes. All right, well, hey, look, it's, it's seven years old today, the show. We got. I was saying before, we got a great show tonight. Chris Caffrey from Sabotage, TSO will be on later on. Rudy Sarzo, he's got Devil, Devil City Angels going right now. And Rudy's been in every band on the planet, I think, you know? Yeah, pretty much. So that should be play pretty cool, the, I have to say. Play with all the legends, if you think about <laughs> it. That's right. And now he's getting to talk to two of them, you know? So it's even better. Oh, yeah, even more. That really brings <laughs> up his profile. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Well, you know what? I'm still waiting. Let's get on another torture song while we wait. And okay. 
We'll do that. I'll see if I can figure this one out. Why, why, why. He's getting back to me right now, so let's see. All right. Nothing like live radio, right? Yeah, nothing like, like, yeah, like live TV, live radio, sure. Absolutely. We're actually going backwards, you know? Like, yeah. First there was radio, then there was nothing television. Like live radio, right? Oh, let me <laughs> mute Mike. Like, uh, like, like you should know better than that. We went back. I'm sorry. Let's see if this works. If I answer his.
gotta work. Hey. Hey, you there? I'm here. Hello. Ian, are you there? There we go. Yes. Okay, we got it all worked out Dude. now. All right. <laughs> you gotta love technology, huh? Impressive. Okay. Hey, like I was saying before, I'm so happy that you're back with the band again and that you're playing and getting active. I mean, it's been a long time since Torch started. I mean, over 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's. Uh, I think uh, next next year, I think it's actually 35 years since we started. I, I really feel old now. <laughs> yeah. What about, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, if you remember, you go back to the very early days of the band. I mean, yep. you actually had a different singer before Dan actually joined the band back then, didn't you? Yeah, we had a guy called Stefan. Yeah, but he he only lasted two gigs. That's <laughs> long. Yeah. yeah, and that's part part because he was you know squeezing all the time, but also because of the pyrotechnics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that really got to him. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely do it. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Dan joins the band, and then I mean, I look back 1981, 1982. I think the first EP actually came out around 82, and for what I recall, you guys really weren't happy about it because. I guess you didn't plan on it being released the way it was. Uh, I think the, the first EP, I mean, we were quite happy. I mean, uh, it was a big break for, for, for a band from Sweden to be, you know, to, to actually release something. Uh, the issue was uh, regarding uh, a later EP that was released as, as uh, three songs, uh, Cutthroat Tactics, that got some, some other songs. That, that was released uh, Without our approval, so, so to speak. Ah, okay. But, yeah, but the first one we were, we were quite happy with. Uh, that's funny because Bad Girls actually wound up on Electric Kiss later on too, I, but it was a little different version of that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Well, the first EP comes out, and it's just it's like a bombardment of this heavy music. It had that live feel to it. It was incredible. Yeah. And being a band in Sweden, like in the early 80s, was yeah. it difficult to get recognition? Because it probably wasn't known much for heavy metal. No, I mean it was it was very difficult. Uh, I mean, if if you go back to to the seventies, I mean, um, in in Sweden it was very much like uh, commercial music wasn't re- really allowed at all. It was you know it was kind of le- left here in Sweden. So even a band like ABBA didn't really get the recognition they deserved in in Sweden. So um, I mean we were we were quite surprised that uh, that it all t- took off. But uh, I mean something was happening at that point in time in Sweden where lots of bands come out of Sweden, you know, like us, Europe, two and twenty volts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we were, you know, we were lucky. We were there at the right time. Yeah, definitely. But but getting started in the very beginning was it hard yeah. trying to find places to play, uh, and even like reaching outside of the country because you know, there was no internet back then. It wasn't like it was so easy to, to get other people to find out who the band was about in other parts of the world. No, I mean, it's, uh, the internet has, of course, changed everything. So, so, uh, But it was quite, quite amazing back, back then that you, you know, people uh, heard your music outside of Sweden and you didn't really know how it happened. But, you know, you had this whole underground movement going, going on with cassettes and, and everything. So that's, uh, that, that was amazing. Probably, probably worked as well as internet. <laughs> yeah, it really did because I remember being a kid walking into my local record store, and I saw that dragon on the album cover. I was like, I gotta buy this. I never heard the band, but just the album cover sold me with the blood dripping. <laughs> I said, I have to get it, and I paid a lot of money because it was an import from you know Europe technically, and it cost more money back then for you get. But it was like, wow, yeah. and and it just blew me away. <laughs> yeah, cool. 
great stuff. But like I said, yeah, that album had a real live feel to it, like you were playing almost like live, and just added to it. Yeah, it, I mean, it was live. I mean, they, we played live, and then we only did, you know, the, the vocals and the solos. That that was overdubs, but the rest was live. Yeah. Well, it, it just blew me away. From that day on, I was a fan. I remember about a year later, the full length comes out, and it, it's just like, I was like, wow, these guys did it again. But you also redid Beyond the Threshold of Pain. It was much different than the first one. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I can't honestly, I can't remember the logic behind that. But uh, I, I feel we felt that uh, that was probably one one of the best tracks from the from the EP, and wanted to give it you know one more one more chance. So that's what we did. It. Yeah. Well, when the album did, when the album when the album came out, I guess you were expecting you know it was going to get get out there more, and you wanted people to actually hear the stuff that they might not have heard from yeah. the EP, which wasn't distributed as probably big as the album was. Absolutely. Was it difficult getting signed to a label back then? Uh, again, we were we were quite lucky because uh, we didn't have to go through all, all of the stuff. Of course, we we sent the uh, cassettes, etc., to different labels. Uh, but then uh, the guy who produced our first uh, or really our albums, Thomas Senma, he, he had he had some contacts, uh, and uh, so some way he got in contact with a, a guy called Sanjay Tandan. Uh, and, and he started his own label, and he he, he wanted to have a metal group on his label, and that's uh, that that's how we got signed to him. Oh, okay. Well, now the album is out; more people are hearing it now. Did yeah. it kind of do what you wanted it to do? I mean, did you feel like the band made it to the next level at that point? Yes, I mean definitely, and I think we were we were quite surprised, especially when you could see some of the feedback from from outside of Sweden. I mean. You have to realize that when we started off, we were this band, band from from Sweden and not from Stockholm, from a small town in Sweden. And we, we you know, we became locally, we, we became popular. But then all of a sudden, it broke into a totally different level with, with with the EP and the album, definitely. Yeah. At that point in time, was the band able to ever get out of Sweden to perform in other parts of Europe? Uh, Yes, I mean uh, we did. Uh, after we released the first album, we we played some some gigs, and that was just uh, before the second album was uh, was released. So we played in in Holland, Belgium, etc. So we played uh, one gig with Warlock, for instance, with uh, you know Dora Warlock, uh, and uh, lots of and lots of interesting gigs. We played at this uh, biker's place that used to be an asylum, and that was quite, quite interesting. The <laughs> weird. That Steve Streaker drummer, he actually he fainted during the show, but we didn't know this until afterwards. <laughs> Nobody heard the drum stop, huh? No, no. Uh, he, he, he's Lucy, but then it turns out, you know, he forgot to drink water. He said, well, that, that was quite, quite amazing. Yeah. Were any of the early shows ever videotaped? Um, there, there is. I mean, there's a serious shortage of of videos, but there's 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 one show that's that's been videotaped. So, but it's I mean, the quality is not it's not yeah. what what you were hoping for. But there's there's, there's some stuff out there. Because you know, back then they didn't have YouTube and stuff like that for people. No. Everybody, nobody had cameras on their cell phones, and the only thing we ever got to see in America of you guys live, like pictures, like from like some of the underground metal magazines. Yeah. And it says these shows look—they must be great live because you look at those pictures and yeah. you're like, wow, what a show they must put on. But we never got to see any videos of it back then. No, I mean, 
we were and still are very much a, a live band. And of course, we have Dan Dark, who's a real, real crazy character. And it was, it was fun because you never knew what was going to happen during the show. And that was part of the charm with, with George. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Well, yeah. I, know, I know, like you said, not long after that, then you go back into the studio, you start recording again. And that's yeah. where all the stuff came about with that EP where, you know, you weren't happy because I guess it was released without you guys knowing about it. And it was yeah. probably just rehearsal tapes or demo tracks. Absolutely, that 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 was demos for for the upcoming Electric Kids album. Yeah, but Electric Kids does come out about a year later in '84, and then yeah. like it seems like we don't hear from the band at all after that. It kind of just like ended. Did it did it just end like that, or was it sort of building up from that demo tape phase on? Yeah, um, I mean, if you if you listen to Electric Kids, you can you can feel that there's a different um, feel to it. Yeah. Uh, so that that one was recorded live. So we thought, okay, now we have all the studio time. Let's do this properly, which was a bad decision because uh, then all of a sudden the, the energy kind of went went out of it. Uh, and uh, we had great great hopes uh, when we went in the, into the studio to do electricists. We talked of you know big name producers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but somehow, somewhere along along the road, some of the fun went out of it. So, and and I think you can feel it in in Electric Kiss. I mean, there are some good tracks, but uh, it, it's not the same kind of energy as the EP and the album. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's definitely a different sounding record compared to yeah. the album and EP. Was yeah. there pressure put on the band from like the label or management or outside sources to kind of tone it down a little bit? I mean, partly, and, and and also partly, we, of course, we were influenced what, what you know, what was happening at the time, uh, and sound-wise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, and I think it, it's a mixture of outside pressure and, and our, our own feelings, what it should sound like. Yeah, but I think around the time of the album, or right afterwards, yeah. uh, there was a point, I guess, where you guys were looking to part ways with Dan, and he was looking to leave. Yeah. Is that kind of what put the nail in the coffin where you just thought you couldn't go on if it was a different band? No, again, I mean, some of the, the, the fun went went out of it. And, and of course, we were very young. There were lots of other interesting things to do. We were maybe focusing a little bit too much on the, the other aspects of rock and roll life. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, Dan, he actually decided to leave uh, we we tried to carry on, so we 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 did some um, uh, auditions with, with other singers, but but it wasn't the same. So we then then it just you know decided to okay let let's call it quits. Yeah. There was a, it, I mean it was no big drama. I mean we were never like we were never enemies or hated each other or it was just it just kind of fade, faded unfortunately. Yeah, I guess you guys parted yourselves to death. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> Well, that, that's a great way to go out. Yeah, we're still alive. So that's, that's right, yeah. Uh, but, you know, when it did end, I mean, that was right at the point, like, yeah. when heavy metal really just exploded, too, and it became so big. Yeah. Uh, did you guys ever consider trying to get it going again, like, during the 80s at any time? I mean, not not really. So what what happened was when we decided to okay, uh, this is it, and then, then we did a final sh- show for for in a small club where where we started, and then uh, uh, Klaus, uh, uh, one of the guitarists, he, he moved to to the U.S. Uh, so we lived there for a while, and I played with he played bass with Marcy for for a while, and um, and and that that was it, and. Uh, and then, then I mean, what happened then was, of course, everything with grunge, uh, everything. So 
you felt there was like uh, no scene for our type of music. So that's that's why we never really started again. Yeah. Well, well, I know about a little over 10 years ago, Dan put the band back together. He had a different lineup. Yeah. Uh, they re-recorded a lot of the older songs, a couple of newer songs. Yeah. Were, you looking, were you involved in it at that point in any time? Or were you asked to be involved in it? Or did you come back in a little later? Uh, I mean, uh, the, th- the thing was that the, Dan was very excited. and He, he wanted to put the band together again. Uh, but we weren't really ready for it. To, so he asked, he asked everyone in, in the band. And we said, basically said, yeah, we'd love to get to back, get back together again, but we want, when we get back together again, we want it to be good, you know, quality. And we're not prepared to do that. And, of course, Dan was very anxious to start doing shows, so he put this, this other band together again. Yeah. So, yeah. So when did you decide it was time to come back into the fold? And are the other guys playing in there too? Is Steve, the, uh, Steve and Claus and Chris also part of the new lineup? Yeah, so so everyone's part of the new lineup, except for Klaus. And that's because uh, he's had some, some pers- personal issues. So so the thing is that uh, we got together again when, when I turned 50 uh, uh, back in uh, oh, what, three years ago. <laughs> uh, so we thought we I, I was playing uh, together with with uh, Chris and, and Steve, uh, and we, we thought well, well let's invite Dan let's do some torch tracks and it sounded really good so that's when we decided okay let, let's go for it again. Ah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> none of you guys are back together. It's almost yeah. the entire classic lineup of the band playing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you, pl- do you plan on taking it to like the next level now with recording new music or? You're just looking to go out and play right now? No, I mean uh, we're actually right right now at this uh, point in time we're we're rehearsing some new material, so uh, we have about ten new torch tracks uh, line, lined up. So we're just learning how to play them, and uh, and then the plan is to to record them and hopefully get them out there. So yeah, that'll be great. Well, when you guys did get back together for the first time, all of you in the studio, uh, yeah. what did it feel like? I mean. Was it? Did it all come back to you kind of easy? Did it feel like it was 1982 all over again, or did you really have to work hard trying to remember how to play all the songs and put them back together? No, it. I mean, it was you know, it was like a time warp. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I must tell you, so we we did uh, the first show we did together was a something called Rock at Sea, which is where where they uh, they rent this boat, so that's like 2,500. Maniacs on a boat, and we were supposed to play, and we'd done all the rehearsals. Uh, I was, we weren't too nervous about that because we knew it sounded really good. We were nervous about the energy. I mean, we're, we're not 20 anymore. Yeah. But the, the funny thing was, that as soon as you hit the stage, it was just like, just like you know, uh, back back in the 80s again. I mean, yeah. same, same energy level, same mistakes, <laughs> <laughs> all, all the same. Nothing changed. That that must have been great, but it must have been a good feeling, especially. The, I mean, you had to have known over the years, you know, what an impact the band had made on on the scene. That you had a lot of fans, but did you kind of forget that over the last twenty years, and then it came back to you when you saw how the people remembered the music? Definitely. I mean, it, it, it was it was a pleasant surprise, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, and a lot younger kids too today that weren't even born back then. Yeah, yeah, totally cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So, so you're working on the new music. You know, you're gonna yeah. have to get that out soon. Yeah. Uh, what, what about the playing live? I mean, you know, there are a lot of festivals out there in the summer. A lot yeah. of people go. To, you're looking to try to go to the festivals where you can get the name of the band out there again, really yeah. big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the plan. So, 
the plan is so uh, now now we're uh, doing all these new songs, try to get it released, and then uh, hopefully do some festivals uh, next summer. That would be great. It would be. The new music, I mean, are you trying to recreate that old sound and vibe, or is it going to sound maybe what Torch would have sounded like 35 years later? I think um, when you hear the songs, it's it's very much 80s sounding. It's very much sounding like Tor- Torch back in the good old days. We're, we're, we're better musicians now, so that's the difference. It's slight, slightly heavier, but uh, and and we're not going to fall into this trap that some some old bands do that they feel that they need to get up to date with their sounds and do you know drop D tuning and that stuff. We're not we're not doing that. We're sticking to the old Torch formula. That, that's what we do. Hey, if it worked, if it worked before, it'll work again. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that, but that is a problem because, like you said, a lot of old bands get back together and they feel like they have to update their sound. And you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but. Me being a fan of a band from 30 years ago, I want to hear as much of that sound as I can. That's what made the band famous. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that's the way you feel. And, and in all honesty, I mean, why should we go after uh, this new, newer style? There's much, I mean, the, the younger bands are much better at that. We're, we're good at what we're doing. What we're doing is let's stick to that. Let's, yeah, definitely. Well, with the new music you're working on, were any of these songs stuff that you had from back in the day that you never got around to recording? Is there anything old that you're reworking? No, this is this is brand new. Wow. All brand new. Do you have any old stuff that that's still lying around that hasn't been out yet? Yeah, I mean, the, we do have some some songs, and it's, and it's kind of funny because we uh, just the other day I heard a tape of one of our songs. I didn't realize we made that song. <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we maybe we should look into archives as well. <laughs> That'd be great. And I hope you can videotape some of the newest shows so maybe get like a DVD out there for people that can't get to see you live. It would be really great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, That's fantastic. Hey, William, I can't thank you enough to talk with me today. I know it's really late over there, and I'm not going to keep you much longer because I want to play some music for everybody. But I can't wait. You guys have to get here to America on the second second go-around. I'm going to do what I can to make that happen. (laughs) Yeah, we'll be there. <laughs> uh, I am going to reach out to my contacts and try to get you here. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, but it was great talking to you today, man. The best of luck. And when the record comes out, come back on, and we'll do this all over again. We all do. Okay. Uh, thank Come you on. very much, Ian. Take care. Take care. Bye. Ian Gregg from Torch. I'm glad that we were able to get that interview going. It took a little while, and I apologize that I started beyond the threshold of pain and had to cut it off. But on this show... When something works right, you got to go with it. So let's get back to that tune right now. Actually, we'll start it from the beginning.
there you go, beyond the threshold of pain. Uh, I, I, want, I should have mentioned to Ian, he's still listening in right now, I know that, uh, that he's got some really big fans with Steve Gaines and the guys from Anger Resort. Uh, if it wasn't for Steve getting in touch with Dan originally, me seeing the post, I would have never been able to find these guys. Uh, so thank you, Steve, and I think Ian knows what a big fan Anger of art is of Torch. Okay, you still there? I was here, buddy. Uh, I got to keep asking because there's always problems with this show and the connection. Yeah. And, uh, oh, I had to hang up to disconnect Skype, calling on a different uh, line to get it to work, but yeah. it did work. Thank God the show was three hours long tonight because it took about a half hour to dial the phone number. Yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, I got I to gotta say, I think that was the first interview Torch has done since back in the 80s because I don't think anybody's heard wow. from since then. So I That's feel cool. really honored to have them on here tonight. Uh, it was great. You're the, you're the man, bro. You're the hey, man. Hey, you know, we try, man. We try. We do what we can around here. That's all we can do each week. You know? That's it. We yeah. can't hey, help it. Uh, uh, a, a big night in Brooklyn last night at a Scorpions play. I didn't even know. <laughs> I found out late last night. Yeah, well, I had, I had plans, so, you know. Out, but um, would have been would have been a decent show to go to, you know. Queens right over But up. uh from what I've seen, uh, I saw a couple of videos online. Uh Queens is pretty good. I heard him do uh Queen of the Reich. Yeah. About three quarters of it on a vid and uh some Scorpions. They said they did a medley of like the RCA hits. Yeah, they call it the RCA stuff. Uh, yeah. if I find the post while while we're talking. And That's um cool. Yeah, they did like a... Um, about five or six songs in a, yeah, in a row. Bad. Yeah, you know, like a medley, you know. But uh, they said, oh. yeah, everybody, everybody thought it was, re- I mean, from what I heard, it was really good. And uh oh. fuck, the place was packed. Looked packed. Oh, I can imagine. I, I, I know I still haven't been to the Barclays Center yet for a show, yeah, so, so I don't really know. There. I don't even so know what priest. it looks like, but I would have liked to have gone to see it. But we saw Scorpius last time they retired. So we'll have to see them the next time they retire. Yeah, the last time they retire. The last time they retire, we saw them. We'll see them the next time. And then also last night in Webster Hall, and oh, was it Webster Hall or Gramercy? I don't remember if it was Webster or Gramercy. Nuclear Assault played with Murphy's Law, a band that we used to play right, with a lot Gramercy, back in the day. Right, right. Yeah, so uh, Roger came in from uh, from Vermont to go see them, and uh, Carl went, and I think a few of the other guys. So I was looking at some of the pictures for it. looked pretty good. It looked like it was a pretty good-sized crowd. Especially nice since you got like yeah. another big metal show, like you know, right over the bridge in Brooklyn, and you know, yeah. probably a hundred other clubs had metal shows going on, so it looked pretty good. Definitely, definitely. Right. Yeah, that's what I say. Absolutely. All right, man. So you know what? We got Chris Caffery. We got Rudy Sazo, man. We we haven't even gotten started yet tonight. Yep. Man. Yeah, pretty know. good, huh? I know. Great. Great. Seven. Uh, real fast. Seven I know. We hey, look. We've interviewed so many people on the show. I, I lost track. True, true. If there's but it's any over, other it's over that, 300 people. Oh, no, we're, we're about, we're closing in on 1,000 now. <laughs> like around 900 or something. Really? That much, huh? Yeah, have you written down? You know, <laughs> I just don't have it in front of me. But we're, we're uh, over 900 interviews so far. I mean, you got to yeah. look at, we do two to three, uh, two to three guests a week. 52 weeks yeah. a year. I mean, I've never missed a show. There's a show every single week. We never missed a show. So, you know, you times that, plus there's like 100 interviews that never aired on the show because they either guess that just don't fit the format or they were really bad interviews and never aired them, you know, because they have to pre-record a lot of interviews also. I've right. never even put them on. 
you know. And then I got that ridiculous YouTube channel I started because I was getting slack from some of the PR people. It's like, where's yeah. the interview? I hope you put this guest and that guest, and you never add it. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to tell Like, listen, they're not, they don't fit the format of this show. It's not what we play on here. You know, yeah, but because I got I got to deal with them for so many other interviews. I said, let me put the YouTube channel up, and I put all the interviews on there that I can't put on the show. But nobody goes to the YouTube channel anyway. You would never know that like ten to 15,000 people ever listen to this show live. But yet, on the YouTube channel, like 10 listens to a video. <laughs> 15. <laughs> yeah, the actual, yeah, the actual views. Yeah, it's like 15 people, 20 people. Some videos get like 100. The only one that really got now a couple you- of thousand was the Dave Lombardo one. And I only yeah. that wasn't on regular shows because I interviewed him Monday from his press rep. And then yeah. our radio gave me him four days later. Like, how am I going to hear the same interview, two, you know, twice in a week? So I put yeah. one on YouTube and one on the regular show. But nobody goes to that channel. I think about just shutting it down and, and, and ending it. Nobody goes there. It's like a waste of time. Yeah, you might as well just leave it. You never know. Yeah, I don't you know. Just gotta I put, you got to put more yeah. more links to it, you know, maybe more people. I got an answer, I don't because I really don't want anybody going there. I don't want to distract oh. people from this show where they think that's where all the, you know, we're like a YouTube. Oh, okay, uh, I see what you mean. I see what you yeah, mean. Yeah, we're not a YouTube show. We're a regular on-air internet radio show. I don't want people thinking we just record videos for YouTube and put them yeah. up there like all those other shows do. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, this is, one thing I say, you know, we're live. This is live every see all the fuck-ups, all the problems, you know, you can't get around that. Excellent, true. Good point, good point. Yeah. Good point, you know, good point. I, I don't know. Anything happened in the news this week? I really didn't see much going on, like uh, music news. Well, I mean, when we talked cool. about Stan, we talked about uh, Snyder last week? Yeah, we talked about them, right? Snyder and I Stanley. Know. I don't know if we Paul did it. Paul Stanley and D. Snyder? Well, I know yeah. what happened, but did that, did that happen last week? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, no, I think we talked about that. Well, we might have Lemmy's back playing live again. Sounds good. Right. He had a lung infection. Yeah, maybe he just needed a little, you know, a little rest. Didn't get over being sick yeah. yet. Yeah, because also the higher altitudes had a lot to do with the breathing. And that's yeah. definitely true. It's not bullshit. And I don't think, you know, be honest with you, he's the type of guy who wouldn't be, he wouldn't be dishonest and come up with some stupid excuse like, uh, like a kiss would do, or you know, Aerosmith or something like that. You <laughs> yeah. know, because he's got, he don't have, he don't have spin doctors. You know what I mean? He's no. the doctor. He's, he's Doctor Rock. Rock. You remember? No, he right. got a good song, Doctor Rock, an old song. It's real good. Yeah. That's him, man. He's he's rocks with his cock out and all warts and all. He's the fucking man. He is the fucking. He is the Keith. Uh, Keith, um, what's his fucking name? <laughs> <laughs> he's the uh, he's the Rolling Stones of our generation, man. He's actually the of Rolling our... Stones of this generation. He's the same age. <laughs> yeah, even though he's the same age, he 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 rocks it harder than they do. Come on, I mean Absolutely everybody's like, oh, not. the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones are that old, but they don't rock like like fucking Motorhead does. The fucking no, intensity they that comes, the intensity that comes off that stage, just the sound. I mean, like. Like Manowar used to call it Black Wind. It really is Black Wind. I've I've been on stage years ago at the Lamours and uh, hit a couple of open chords on Ross's guitars, and it is like a fucking wind that you feel and you're back. I mean, I've I've played in front of a stack myself, but never fucking nine cabinets. And forget about even going on Joey's fucking side, you know? Yeah. That's like another fucking stratosphere. But there, but you is, need a I mean, I could get on his side. 
you need a pitchfork, what'd you say? A passport. <laughs> There's no a passport. Yeah, well him and Joe him him and Ross were seeing eye to eye years ago, so I guess uh he was a little he was a little jealous because of like me and my friend Vinny and this other fella we were all like hanging with Ross and he's just like, Hello fellas, you know, like with his fucking deep voice. And Vinny looked at him and said, What's up, brother? And he goes, Oh, Vinny and he tried to get Vinny to come over his side. But Vinny did <laughs> He stayed out over there. But uh yeah, so like I was saying, man, that fucking, the noise, uh, not the noise, but the sheer energy that comes up yeah. the, off those amplifiers. And I'm sure it's nothing uh, It's n- nothing less I had a Motorhead show. <laughs> I'm sure of that. Well, I wish I had a Motorhead song to play right now because it would have been a great following, but how about we do some Merciful Fate instead? Oh, okay, That's ju- that works. All right, there you good, go. Uh, the good old yep. alternative. There you go. Kyron said he loves this song. It's his favorite one, so here you go. Excellent. Thank you. 
There you go. Liege Lord wielding an iron fist. And right before that, Shock Paris. I don't know what happened to those guys. We had them on the show a long time ago. We had Vic on here. Great guy to talk to. It looks like they were going to get active again. But I saw, I think, one or two appearances at some of the festivals. Uh, I haven't really heard much yeah. about them. So I'm going to have to reach out to Vic and uh, maybe get him back on the show and uh, catch up on what's going on. T, I was just, uh, before you were yeah. talking about uh, the shit with, uh, what do you call it, uh, D. Schneider and uh, right. and, uh, and uh, Paul Stanley Paul going back and forth. Did you read, uh, Ken Creed, he used to, uh, he used to manage Convo for West I Man, but I heard he was also booking at Lamar back in the day. Uh, I really don't remember. But uh, he wrote a, a note about how Paul Stanley kind of screwed Lamar's out of five grand. Did you read that? No, no, I never heard he, that. He was uh, he was booked in the shows, obviously, at Lemoore's, I guess, towards the later half of the 80s. Right. Uh, I don't really know the exact years or whatever. I mean, you know, but I remember him managing Carnival back in the day. Uh, I guess he was doing a lot more. I really don't couldn't say, to be honest with you. But he was saying that uh, when Paul Stanley was going to, I don't know if it was when he was with Kiss or out of Kiss, or, but he was doing some sort of solo stuff back then. Yeah, he did solos. Uh, he played at the Garden. I mean, the Garden yeah. at Lemoore's uh, once with a solo yeah, band. And he, yeah, and he contacted. Well, the, his people contacted Lamore about right. you know giving putting him on there for two nights. I guess he wanted to do like a warm up type thing before he he took it out to the road or whatever. Uh, and don't quote me on the exact dollar figures. I don't remember. Yeah, um, yeah, he yeah. said something like that at Lamore. Uh, usually, like the bands will request fifty percent of the money up front, and then the other fifty would get paid you know the night of the performance. Uh, because right. Lamore's was like really the biggest place to go to back in the eighties for shows, and it was like a major player. They didn't have to do that kind of deal with a lot of bands. I think they would give them like $1,000 or something and give them the rest that night, I guess, after they made their money too. Uh, you know, a lot of those rules didn't have to apply to them, I guess, because of the really, you know, I guess the position they were in back then, being the only real major metal and rock club uh, in the right. city. Uh, but Paul, Paul Sanders' people had asked for, you know, half the money, whatever, up front. So it was supposed right. to be like $10,000 for the two nights, you know, 5000 a night, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they gave them the $5,000, you know, before he played. And then after the show was over, you know, they gave them the five thousand dollars. Oh, I was ten thousand a night. I'm sorry. So they gave okay. them. He gave them. He gave them ten thousand dollars up front. And then after the show was over, they gave him five thousand the first night. And the next night he was supposed to get, you know, the five thousand for that night. So it would have been oh, ten thousand right. a night. Uh, but Ken took care of it the first night because he was there. The second night he wasn't at the show. And the owner of Lamar, I forget the guy's name. Um, Mike. Uh, you probably know. I don't remember. You probably know better. Probably than Mike. Played the, uh, the brothers. I, Two brothers yeah, he, and then the. Uh, well, one of them was there to take care of the bill that night, and he gave them $9,000 that night because he was used to the way that they always did, where they gave a band $1,000 right. and paid the rest okay. that night. So uh, Kevin said, you know, I reached out to his people, saying, listen, there was a mistake made. Uh, you know, I think it was George. Was that the guy's name, the other guy? George, George, yes. George. That was it. He made a mistake. You know, he paid him based on the way we normally do it, and we overpaid by $5,000. So the manager says, the parent says, all right, you know, let me get in touch with Paul. We'll take care of it. It's not a problem. We understand that. Waits a little bit. He doesn't get a call back. He gets a message from me. He says, uh, Paul says he's not returning the money. He said, if you were stupid enough to make the mistake, then it's your fault. Oh, wow. What a scumbag. Now, not, now it's not that Lamar's is hurting for money, but five grand is five grand. I mean, that's but, not like, you know, you know but you're talking dollars. about Lamar's pocketbook. A and a yeah, and, and Paul Stanley's pocketbook. Come on. Exactly. That was low. So and he's the type we, to wear a pocketbook. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, boom, boom. <laughs> if you tapped him one more time and he refused to give back the overpayment wow. on the money, I mean that that's pretty low. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah, pretty. That's a that pretty low thing to do. 
so I was taken back by that because I was like, you know, you really got to talk to the people that are behind the scenes of a lot of these things because they kind of know yeah. like all the shit that goes on and you hear stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. So, and I, I forgot what he was saying. He said like years later, something else went on with Kiss or whatever. I think. And uh, oh, you should try to get Ken Creedy on the show, man. Really. I, I don't, if I'm, you ever I, have the time. I spoke to that guy once 30 years ago. He was a friend of Evan. Yeah, it I don't, don't even matter. Know. It don't matter. No. It doesn't matter. Stuff like that makes you scratch your head saying, what a piece of shit, you know? That, that's really a scumbag move. Yeah, yeah. And then as part of Gene Simmons has been in the news lately because the police are in his house investigating because somebody was using his computer in the house to download child Oh, yeah, that was like a month ago, Mike. Yeah, I forgot we yeah. never talked about that. Well, it was in the paper today because he was interviewed oh, against that. Well, Dave, somebody yeah. interviewed him, asked him about it. He says, you know, because sometimes there are cockroaches that live right in your kitchen or your house, like uh, whatever. So I guess no matter where you are, no matter who you are, there's always that kind of in there. So I was trying to find out who in the house that might have been working there, you know, or did it or if somebody hacked into his computer and used his, you know, IP address from the outside. Yeah, to me, all signs point to To me, it's Jared from Subway. All signs point to that guy. Well, yeah. I, I mean, know. how hard is it for him to go to, to Gene Simmons' house and sit in his driveway with his laptop. <laughs> that fucking bastard. I swear to God, man, what a piece of shit to, I mean, oh, man, Jesus. Those are the ones you got to catch. Yeah, that, that's really evil, man. I mean, how the hell he hired that guy to be, like, uh, like the, the, uh, the manager of his charity to yeah. help kids. And then the guy is, and then you find out the guy's into that shit, and you say, "Yeah, why don't I try it?" You know, get the fuck out of here. It's like I, I think two of them were deviates before then. They knew each other. I think the two of them were deviates before then, and just got together and just made like a conglomerate out of it with the two of them. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to say that that guy turned them on to it. Yeah, you didn't like you never had that those feelings in your life. Yeah, Stop the fucking shit. bullshit. That's fucked up. It's like you coming to me with a fucking Anthrax album, and all of a sudden I like it, you know? Get the fuck out of here. If I don't like it, if I don't like it, I don't like it. (laughs) That's right. right. Well, I give his wife credit. As soon as she found out, she left him. So, you know, she was in the dark about it. Most of them stand by him and make up excuses. She just fucking walked out the door. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're not. I don't think they're super religious people, so you'll find out with those super super religious people. People. Oh, it's like those Dukes or Thuggers, whatever the hell you call them. Duggars, yeah, Duggars, yeah, right? the, yeah, eight and skate or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you got a lot of time on that. Coming uh, up again. Yeah, fucking, <laughs> <laughs> fucking. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. 18, 18 and coming, yeah. and I love my sister and her little friend. Uh, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's too much. I, also, I was also looking around. I saw, uh, Bruce Dickinson is uh, in the process of writing and recording, I guess, a new solo record, a concept record. It's never wow. kind of broke up by me the first time around when he did Tattoo Millionaire. Wasn't that like a thorn in the band's side or something? No, I don't, I don't think so, was it? It might have might have led to it, you know. I don't remember. I thought that was one of like the, the main riffs about him wanting to do something. I know that happened with another band. I can't remember who the hell it was. They had the guy in the show, too. But uh, that seemed to happen a lot with it. You know, the singers want to do something solo, and they feel like a threat to the band. And Yeah, well, look at me. Uh, um, look at Steve. Steve's doing the lion there, the British lions, you know. So, I mean, so, it's so, a I, different I, I now, guess too. nowadays, you know, like, you know, you even said it yourself. Everybody plays on everybody's records, and, 
you know, he, he, he actually wrote, I think there's two songs that he totally wrote, um, Dickinson wrote totally on, you know, on the new record. Yeah, but, that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty damn good, you know, so, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, Steve Harris runs that band with an iron fist. I mean, you know, it's basically his baby, and, you know, yeah. he's in control of everything, so it yeah, doesn't have does to get give, he does give He does give Bruce a bit of a, you know, a free reign, if you think about it. I mean, if I was, if it was my band, I wouldn't have released half the vocals on that record, there's a lot of times, I you know, don't get me wrong, I love it. I love the spontaneity of it. Maybe that's why they left it in. A lot of times his voice is, I mean, you know, you get that, they call him the siren, the, um, the yeah. air raid siren. Yeah. But sometimes it's just a little too grating, you know. And, and it's on a, raw, a live recording you can understand, you know. They've always yeah. done that with their live recordings. They never polished them up like Kiss and UFO and, and you know, like bands that. like that. I like that. I like, I like it better. when it's raw and live, and you know, little yeah. flubs, and you know, huh, you know. But Absolutely. sometimes, I, maybe because I listened to the whole album, the first time I listened to it all was on YouTube, and I wasn't sure if I was going to get it or not, you know. So I listened to it on YouTube, and uh, the funny thing with YouTube is they actually inter. I never knew this, but like if you listen to an album, they will actually interrupt the song in the middle to run another commercial. You know how you got to watch a commercial in the beginning of YouTube? Yeah, you know, I know. Before I, a video? I yeah, like, and it's not even like, all right, after two songs that play a commercial and then play a third song. Yeah. It's like right in the middle of the song. You're just about to hear a lead, and all of a sudden, you know, you start hearing a K.O.Pectate ad, you know? It's like, yeah, what? And, YouTube. Yeah. People that, that put up the videos on there, they opt into the revenue sharing. So well, they, they have it. to, right? By, no, by law, no, they have, have to. Well, well, you know, because I have the, the the YouTube channel up, but there's no commercials, nothing that I put up there. I, I ban it. I say, I, I check off the box. No, no commercials yeah, to be in. Yeah, but all your stuff is your intellectual property. When you post somebody else's property, you know, those are like, you got the, oh, what they call the standard, it. yeah, it's called the standard YouTube license or something. Because I oh, remember okay. I, the first time I posted something on YouTube, I, it might even still be up there, but I think they they took down the music. It's just a plain uh, was a I tribute to that. one of my my two old dogs, dog. and I had you're my yeah. best friend. Yeah, I remember from that. Queen. I mean, I had it up there for about three weeks, and all of a sudden, it's just there's no music. And then I get an email, you know, when I go to my YouTube account, I, you know, notifications, I read the notice, uh, you know, by law, copyright, because I use Queen's song, you know. It's like for a yeah. fucking two-minute fucking dog video that got like seven views and probably three of them were me. I mean, give me, I mean, four of them, probably five of them were me. Yeah. I mean, give me a fucking break, you know. But, no, you're I, right. you know, I understand. But nowadays no. you can put all this people's stuff but they have like a standard YouTube license, you know that. No, you're, somebody you're right. Wants, uh, yeah. You're right because I I usually just put the interviews up that I I do because really I can care less about them. I have a lot of time. But one yeah. thing was actually pretty decent. And I should have put them on the show, but I just didn't have time. So I said, you know what? Let me put one of their songs on with the video attached, so people can hear the band. And right. I remember before I came on, there was always an ad on before. So like, why is there an ant popping up before oh, the show? Oh, see? see. And when I went back to go look at it, it says, you are airing copyrighted material during the show. You have been yeah. given permission by the copyright owner, but it's based on his uh, settings. And because he has commercials for his settings, it kept coming up. So I deleted the video. Because <laughs> I, I just, you know, it annoys me. It annoys me here because I even hear on Block Talk Radio, 
they're bombarding yeah. the show with commercials. So I used yeah, to put yeah. the BTR player like on all my websites for people to listen to because they weren't allowed to put the commercials on the players back then. Oh. Now all of a sudden, you put them on the like if you go like the like the uh, dot com, the com site, people used to yeah. listen to the show there and not have to hear commercials. Now there's a thirty second commercial before the show even plays on the player. It always happened uh. here on. If you went to Block Talk Radio directly, it always happened. But now it's happening uh. off site, off site play, and I can't figure out how to stop it. I see, I, so I see. apologize to everybody listening. It's not me. I don't make no money off the show. It actually costs me money, you know. Uh, but I just, I can't help it. I don't, this is like they're trying to generate more revenue, I guess. And they're bombarding them. I keep sending them emails. How do I stop all of these commercials? I don't want it on, on the show. You never get an answer back. So, I don't know, but I do apologize wow. for that happening. Not me. I just want you to hear the show. I don't want you to get turned off by a 10-second commercial and not listen. You know, I'd rather have, not have no commercials and no money and have you listen to the show. I don't really care. Yeah. We don't make a living doing this. It's not our career. You know, it's just a good time we have here. And we're lucky to turn it into something a little nice, you know? So, eh, it is what it is. How about we get us some music? We're bullshitting way too much now. No, it's all right. We got three hours to fill, huh? I know, but I got two more interviews coming up. We didn't even get eight to o'clock, them yet. 8 o'clock, the Giants are playing, so I've got to leave about 8 o'clock. Is that all right? Yeah, I figured that. I figured that. I figured that. Don't worry. Sorry. One of the interviews is after 8 o'clock tonight, so you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, that'll fill up. up a little bit, you know. All right, well, let's get on a couple of tunes right now. Uh, you know, Satan's got a brand new record coming out called Adam by Adam or something. Yeah, Man, I like guys, that. Those they songs. did it again. They two songs in a row were fucking, released so far. How do they get that fucking sound? It's so the fucking sound, good. I was, I was just saying that, man. They recreated that sound on the last record. I thought it was a fluke. But they've done it again. That's a really unique they've sound they have. They like, got that on. fucking sound. They got that NY OBM sound, OBHM sound. Really, I mean, it's like it's like listening, but it's definitely better quality. But it's like oh, listening yeah. to that old those old fucking records again. It's like really great, you know. I can't wait for. And like to I was saying out. before, people, if you like vinyl and you like your digital digital also, you buy your vinyl records on Amazon. They give you the you free the auto rip, so you got your yep. MP3, so you can burn a disc, and you still support the fucking band. I mean, I'll I'll be honest. I listen to a lot of promos Mike Mike gets for me, and I hear a lot of times beforehand. But support the bands that you really like, or else we, I, we're not gonna have we're not gonna have we're not gonna be able to record music. We're not gonna be able to hear n- new right. new music, you know, and keep the old bands. You know, give them some fucking money. I mean, they don't oh, yeah. have they don't all have fucking four hundred one k's and 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 social <laughs> security. You know, yeah, right. Keep the that. goddamn migrants out of fucking Europe. I'm sorry, and the U.S. Okay, well, I, I have tell you to what. say it, Mike. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. You, I like that saying... new word. Instead of saying immigrants, because everybody you know hears immigrants. Now just say migrants. That's what they I are. Hey, whatever you want to say, you can say. You know, I don't give a shit. Well, I'm yeah. that. We have to buy these records now, because I don't know if you've noticed, but we're getting the promos later and later. I mean, it's actually like the day of a release. I know. It's, it's like Motorhead ridiculous, yeah. It's like you get to the slam, like, we get it, but we didn't get it yet. Motorhead and Slay, they both gave us the day of release after yeah. 6 o'clock at night. I'm like, are you yeah. it's like when a it's like when a when a movie uh, what do you call it a movie studio puts out a bad movie they know it's bad they don't release yeah. it like for previews and it comes out in the theater that same day. That's what yeah, it's yeah, like. Yeah. Have to play it. in a way. Well, you know what, kind of my 
might have happened. We might have ended up getting into the B. Uh, <laughs> we got pushed onto <laughs> no, the no. B shelf, you no, know. Everybody got it like that. But you know, Eddie Trunk got his beforehand. Now, uh, Eddie Trunk is different. Come on, you know. Uh, yeah, he is we're not different. Eddie I hate Trunk, to say it. He's going to get it, but, and Sirius is going to get it, you know, but oh, I'm they, just yeah. it, it released on a couple of sites where you, know, you download records, you know, illegally. Yeah, it was on, yeah, illegal. We, well, we got it as press, and it wasn't just I'll us. be I'll honest say, with you. I, be, I, I troll those illegal sites, and uh, if well, I don't, if get if, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What the fuck, you know? But like I said, I always support my good, the good bands. I'll buy that Satan record. I'll buy anything new by all you know all the old bands because you know you got to keep them you know relevant so to speak if that's all the right, right well, word. I don't migraine. have the new Satan on me. I don't have the new Satan on me. Migraine so we'll instead of migraine. We'll go back to that first Satan record. We'll do some trial by fire. All there right,
wait for you inside that bottle of
Royal Limps out of San Francisco. I used to love those guys back in the day, giving us some yeah. liquid courage. Most people remember them from Rob Flynn and Phil Dremel, who went out to form Machine Head later on. Even though I think they were in bands at different points in time where they kind of crossed each other, but a lot of different guys in that group and uh, other kind of like can get back together. They were real solid thrash act back in the day. Ah, it's almost seven thirty, man. Usually we would be wrapping up the show, you know, in a little bit, but we yeah, got ninety cool. minutes to go still. So. Yeah, that's nice, nice. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to get Rudy on in a few minutes. I'll play a song by Quiet Ride, then we'll play something maybe by uh, his new band, Devil City Angels, right after that. This is, I don't know if you heard the record yet. Uh, uh, really cool. It's got Ricky Rocket from Poison on drums. Uh, and I wish I could remember who else is in the band. <laughs> Tracy Guns from L.A. Guns is on guitar. I really don't remember who's singing with them. Uh, the guy's name just kind of slipped my mind right now. Uh, but they kind of took it back, like the 70s surf rock sound of, like, you know, out in California. Oh, Right. Yeah, it's it's just a rocket. They're like a, a sort of like Sammy Hagar, Sammy Hagar solo. Exactly. But it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. I heard the tunes. Yeah, it's yeah. like you know, it's sort of like a mix of the Beach Boys with like seventies hard yeah. rock mixed together. Really cool stuff, yeah. you know. Different. So uh, we'll get something on by that maybe after the interview. Uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes. We've got to reach out and get Rudy on air. Uh, you know, I was thinking the other day, what did Jesus do for fun? Did you ever think about that? I mean, what did this guy do for, like, a good time? He couldn't have been preaching all day long about everything and saving people. No. He had to have had a hobby. He had to do something for fun. Is it a fisherman? No. The father, was, Joseph was a was a carpenter. Yeah. And a fisherman. So maybe he was a fisherman. He liked to fish. I don't know. He had to have had a hobby. I mean, something. I, I don't know why, but. He had to do something to kill so many hours in a day. It's a lot of hours in a day to go preaching. Maybe Mary Magdalene? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, if anybody knows what Jesus did for fun, let me know. <laughs> Mary Magdalene was my hobby. You know, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, he's trying, maybe he hung uh, out with the hookers and tried to, what he called them. Uh, you know, try to bring them. My wife will divorce if she has to talking like this. I know you. Your wife's a holy role. I love her. Yeah, She's so yes, she is. Well, so, you know, you need you need people like that in your life. You know, they kind of balance right. you out. I know. Look, I, know. I pray. I, I pray to the Lord's. I, you know, whoever's up there, whoever's listening, I pray. Uh, but you know, it, it's the way. It's the silliness of the way um, they put religion for 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 reality. You know, and if we don't put that shit to bed even with the Christian, Catholic whatever you want to call it and the Jews, if we don't put it to like rest or whatever I'm not saying put it to bed, that, that's not really the right way to say it, but if we don't put it second, if we don't put it like second, if we keep it first I mean it's ridiculous like, though, you know, this Kim whatever, that fat bitch four fucking marriages, three divorces uh, marri- uh, uh, um Pregnancy out of wedlock. Uh, give me the fucking break. You don't want to let two gay people get married. When you're in charge, that's your fucking job, and that's the fucking law of that state. That you know, you're right. You're, you're supposed to do right. it. You have to walk away. If you don't want to do job. it, then suspend yourself. Find another job. Go to the union. Say I need I need a new position because I I can't you know, in good conscience do this anymore and that that's okay. You know, but don't compare it to the little mom and pop who have a bakery and they refuse to do a that's a private business. If they don't want to do right. a fucking gay cake, they don't, they don't want to do, do a double dong cake, 
They don't have to. You know, they don't have to do a shrub scout cake. You know, how many? You know, they don't have to do a BVDV cake. They don't have to do. Uh, okay, yeah, now you know where I get a fish cake or anything. Like that. Tuna fish cake. You know, they don't have to do it because it's <laughs> because it's their own fucking business. They don't work for fucking you know uh, hostess. You know. You know what, it's, it's a Sunday night when we come on air, so it's kind of late to call, like, bakeries and stuff like that. Maybe yeah, we should start yeah. calling up bakeries and ask us, like, ridiculous stuff, like on Howard Stern when he does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's not a bad idea, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, but then you got to get permission, I think, to play it. Oh, uh, okay. Well, then I don't want to Because I know, I know I've, I've spoken to Chris, uh, 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 Richard Christie, uh, who's, you know, uh, one of the big, the big uh, producers of that stuff of those phony phone calls and they got thousands of of hours of tape that they can can't release because people did not give oh um, okay I got it. yeah they so i mean you could do it but no nah, i wouldn't take mean, a chance it ain't worth it you know yeah, with your luck you know somebody will come that down that would be the one that gets me but if you got it. permission from the person if they had a sense of humor you know yeah. a lot of people have a sense of humor because they hear it's how it's done so right away they say, oh, if it's going to be on Stern, yeah, yeah, I'll give my sense of humor, yeah. you know, I'll well, give my... Well, uh, when I hear the name of this show, they will be like, huh, who, what, who, yeah. what? Uh, we'll let that go. All right, well, let's get us a quiet ride right now. We'll get the interview with Rudy going right afterwards. How about we do, uh, let me see here. You know, let's do Run for Cover. It's probably the hardest song on the record. Right, I cool. think it's the only. I think it's one of the only ones he played on, too, so there you go. Oh, <laughs> 
for all your kiddies that don't remember back to like 1982, 1983, that was like the biggest record in the world back then. Well, we're the number one. All right, let's talk to Rudy Sarzo. Hello. Rudy, this is Mike from Heavy Metal Mayhem. How are you? Hey, Mike. I'm doing terrific. Uh, how about yourself? I, I, it's a beautiful summer in New York. How bad can it be? Yeah, it's actually not too bad here in L.A. It's not too hot yet because it's early morning. So uh, you'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> so how are you doing? Hey, Rudy, yeah. it's I'm doing great, man. I really am. And I, and I love talking with you. I mean, when I, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was playing some of your music from some of the bands that you've been in over the years. And I'm like, you know, if there's a band forming somewhere in this world that plays hard rock and heavy metal and they need a bass player, there's a good chance Rudy Sosso is going to be in that band. Uh, you know what? I've been very blessed to play, to play with some of the best. You know, you know, I, I, you know, I, I teach music. So I always tell my students, you know, always play with the be- better people than yourself. <laughs> yeah. That way, that, that way you, you have an opportunity to learn from the best. And I, I have learned from some of the best. I, I, yeah. That's great. Well, like you say, you play with a lot of kids today. You're teaching them. I mean, do you see something in them? Is there like, is that passion there? Are they more technically like, you know, proficient than like you were when you were that age? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll put it this way. They have the opportunity. Uh, there's, you know, I, I learn a lot, you know, going to, uh, you know, going to, uh, I go to YouTube a lot and I just catch lessons. But one of the things that, that they forget to teach is why, let's say, for example, they'll show you a riff to a song and they'll show you how to play it, but not why playing it or why did the person that originally created the riff is actually playing those particular notes, which I think is very important. It's more focused on technique rather than on music theory. And every time I teach, I, I, I balance the lesson between technique and music theory, because you also need to know why you're playing those notes, you know, which is very, it's, 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 it's totally important, but also so it's technique to be able to maximize the uh, your fingering position, whether it's your right hand or left hand technique, you know, where, whether it's your plucking or whether it's your threading technique. Yeah. You, you know, it's like music is, to me, like when I listen to any music, a song, I don't care if it's a bass part, a guitar part, it's all about the feeling to me. You know, it, it brings out the emotion in you. All music does that, to, I think, everybody. So when you see people playing today, I mean, does does emotion count for maybe a lack of ability? Is there a good mix of both that can make you a good player? Because some people aren't so you know technically what? proficient, but yet they got that feeling, you know? Yeah, I think emotion... Proper emotion, and by that I mean, you know, you can you can just you know anybody can pick up an instrument. Like let's say I'm not really a great drummer, and I can be emotional about banging on something. It's not very musical. <laughs> you know, to me, it's all about the the balance between musicality and passion. You can be very passionate. You know, let's say it's, it's you know it's, we all think that we can sing. You know, that's why we sing in the shower. <laughs> Emotionally, but it might not be very pleasant to anybody else yeah. but yourself. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's, that's where, you know, that's one thing that must be taken into consideration. Yeah, you know, we all, in our heads, we can be like the greatest, but, you know, let's take, you know, let's be realistic. How, how musical are we being about it? Yeah, that, that's true. But it is funny. We all think we're great in our own minds. <laughs> Other people hear what you're yeah, doing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the things you're doing that's great today is Devil City Angels. Man, when I play uh-huh. that music, I'm like, this just takes me back to the old days of rock and roll. I mean, it's just classic yeah. balls out rock and roll. It's just, and there's nothing better than that. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I and I think I can give you a really perfect uh, uh, perspective of it because I did not get to play on the record. Eric Whittingham played on the record, so I can yeah. give you the perspective from the fan point of view who actually just joined the band. You know, and you're right; it is back to rooted in the good time rock and roll, which is actually even rooted closer to the blues roots of the music that my my, yeah. my generation. My generation grew up with, you know, uh, rooted into the 60s and 70s, uh, blues-based music. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to get to next. It reminds me of being on the beach in California in the late 60s and early 70s. It's got that vibe to it. And, you know, that's something that really nobody is really doing right now. So I think you guys really latched on to something that's, you know, going to be really good. Yeah, I think as, as music has progressed, the branches as have really uh, grown from the roots. And I think, in you know, it's just like, you know, I was doing some gardening around around my, my house the other day, and my wife said, you know what, you better cut back your branches because they're, they're dying. So, yeah. you know, it's almost like pruning. It's like musical pruning. You know, you got to yeah. get, get back again, you know. And uh, that, that, that to me is a perfect metaphor. I think musically... Musicians who've been like myself playing around for a long time. At some point, we really need to need to prune back what what we're creating and get back closer to the roots. That way, we can you know grow. Let let it grow back out. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and Tracy have guns all going on. Now you're together in uh, Devil City Angels. So you guys have been playing together for quite some time, and you know, it, it's a nice camaraderie between the two of you. Yes, yes, there's a lot of musical and, and you know, human respect that we have for each other. Uh, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, we sit around, Tracy and I, we talk about the L.A. scene. Now, he's, like, way younger than I am, but I was, I was, I was an old guy in the, in the 70s. I mean, you know, I was already in, in my mid-20s, you know, and, and, and Tracy was, like, a teenager, but he used to, like, sneak in. And, and watch Quiet Riot perform live at the Starwood and so on. And uh, so, you know, we talked about those days and when music was actually, again, closer to the roots, you know. So when we decided to do this, we said, you know what, let's go back to the way we used to do things back in late 70s, early 80s. Music that there's room for creativity, even when you're playing live. That's why you do a lot of jamming which is something that I haven't done it in years because, yeah. you know, once, 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 once we start touring, you know, with bands with Ozzy, we, we never really jam, you know, even though Randy took a lot of liberties in his uh, solos and even the way that he plays the song live, you know, with, uh, with Ozzy, uh, definitely with Quiet Riot, definitely with Quiet Riot. But then with Ozzy, you know, there was a certain, certain way that he played the songs 
that since they were already recorded, either for Blizzard or for Diary of the Madman records, you know, he had to stick to certain uh, musical landscapes, you know, like basically yeah. the way that he played it on the record. But then again, he would twist it a little bit. But I think he actually took the most liberty when, he, when, we, when we would do the Black Sabbath song. Because since, of course, he was not part of the creative process, he was able to interpret the, those songs a little bit different every single night. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I look at the bands you've played in. It's just, it's just amazing. I mean, some of these bands have a big party life for a long time, like, you know, Quiet Riot and Whitesnake and Dio and Blue Eyes the Cult and, you know, your time with Ozzy. And it's like, it's, and it's just as many bands that you've joined that were already established. There was many bands that you were with from the beginning also. And they both, I guess, yeah. have the good and the bad because when it's your thing, you're more involved creatively. And as a musician, that's exactly what you want to be. Where in other bands, you're kind of stepping into a role that was established by somebody else, and you kind of got to, you know, establish your own identity yet kind of stay true to the past. I mean, I guess they both have the good and the bad, right? Uh, listen, there's no sound, downside to being in a in a, in a great band. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. No, no downside whatsoever. So it's all good. Uh, yeah, and you know what? Once you, I mean, come on, you know, it's the reason why. Let's say you go into a situation, let, let's say Whitesnake. First of all, playing with one of the greatest singers in the whole world. Yeah. David Coverdale. Okay, it's all good. Okay, then again, you're going to be working on performing incredible blues bass rock and roll. It's all good. Then, for example, with Whitesnake, I also had the opportunity to make a record with the time. You know? yeah. So, so what, what, once you go into the studio to make a record like that, you have to look at the legacy of the band, respect the legacy, and, and that, but also put it into perspective that you're making an 80s record. It has to fit into a certain radio format. And you go, that's, I'm talking about back in the day where that really matters. Now it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You just make the music that you want to make, and if Raider plays it, fine. Uh, most, most likely, they're not going to play it anyway. So you're basically... You are servicing the needs of your fan base to actually give them the music that that they're looking for, the music that they need, but new music. You know what I mean? So, uh, so it's 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 a win-win situation. It really is. Yeah, you know, Rudy, over the, over the, over all the years in music, I mean, you've seen it. It's, it's a roller coaster ride. There's ups, there's downs, there's changes, trends come and go. So many different things happen, and, and you go back to the very early days of Quiet Riot, like the Randy Rhodes days of Quiet Riot, you know, and it's like nothing was happening back then. Young guys starting out, you couldn't make it happen. Then you're in Ozzy, and you're playing, you know, arenas and big shows, and then that comes to an end, and then Quiet Riot starts up again where you're like an equal partner in the band now with the, with the other guys in the mental health lineup of the era. When did you guys start playing at that time where you said, you know what? We're going to make it. This is going to happen. When did it first dawn on you that, you know, this band's going to hit. We're going to be big. Or did it ever dawn on you at that time? No, it, I, it, it never dawned on us. I mean, you have to take into consideration. We were the first to have a debut metal record on Billboard that went to number one. Yeah. And nobody, nobody foresee that. I mean, you know, when I look back, I thought Led Zeppelin did that. I thought Deep Purple did that. And no, it was us. And it was like, wow, that's weird. But then again, really made the difference was that we were part of the MTV generation. That that was it. We were yeah. an MTV 
community was playing Come on, Feel the Noise every half hour because they didn't have enough content. And also, you know, they liked the video uh, because prior to that, we gave them little help and it did not get on such heavy rotation like Come on, Feel the Noise did. So uh, there was a combination of the right song, the right video at the right time on MTV. You know, that, that made all the difference in the world, you know. Uh, MTV changed the 80s. It changed the music industry, you know. Yeah. And part of the reason why things are different now is because MTV stopped playing music videos. <laughs> you know, it's true. Basically. You yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was a total uh, game changer right there. Uh, did we think we were going to, oh, my God, you know, what, what we hoped for was uh, that, that record would sell maybe 10,000, 50,000. So, <laughs> so, yeah, really. I mean, we thought with 50,000, 10,000, we could make another record and, you know, go on there and tour and open for as many bands as we can. You know, just basically make a living out of, out of playing music, which is, which I, I, you know, I think it's at the core of what every musician uh, thinks about. I mean, I'm still hoping to make a living out of playing music. I'm not making music <laughs> and to selling millions of records. It's impossible, you know. It so, is. Yeah, I, you know, it's still it's all in the things. You know, as a matter of fact, a lot of the bands at the top, successful bands, have opted not to make records. Or if they make a record, you know, they look at it as okay, we're going to make new music, and and you know, let's say for example, ACDC, ACDC last record you know they, they they came up with a new record uh yeah. how many how many copies have it sold uh, it probably didn't sell many but it was probably downloaded about a million times for free yeah exactly okay but nevertheless they're headlining stadiums yeah <laughs> i know so there was no way 30 years ago that you could sell you know maybe let's say even if they sold a million a million would that make you a headline Stadium act. <laughs> but it's now, true. Because, yeah, but now because of the people come for the legacy that is ACDC, the legacy that is U2 and, and, and Kiss and so on, or even Foo Fighters. You know, and put it this way, U2 gives their music free now. You know, when, when I upgraded my, my, my iPhone. Yeah, you got the album. <laughs> came with it. Yeah, it's like. Thanks, but I don't know. You know, thank you, but it's just taking up space in my in my eyes. You know, <laughs> but I think it was very very kind. So it's it's a new different strategy. It's, 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 it's everything has changed. Like we were talking about the roller coaster. Well, that roller coaster that we used to be on, it, it stopped operating. It's time yeah. to get on a different roller coaster. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's a whole different roller coaster now. You know, yeah. Uh, just as scary, just as unpredictable, just as scary, but nevertheless, it's completely different. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, like we, you were just talking about the records and everything. How much of like a band's income, how much of money a band would earn back in the '80s, actually came from the albums themselves, and or was the album really just more of a promotional tool for the band, like it says, to get out on tour and to get those arena jobs and and, and play the big stadiums? Was the money really yeah, in the albums back then for the band? Even even back in the '80s. We relied on on performance, you know the uh, the touring and merchandising. Uh, you know, 
a lot of things, because you have to take into consideration that those videos that, that were, were shot on MTV, they were, they were all recoupable. So, yeah, you could have sold, like, uh, you know, let's say double platinum, but you would have to pay for four videos that would be about between 250000 and 350000 you know, each. So, yeah, you were, you were in the hole, you know. So, uh, selling records, unless you were like a, like a songwriter that took part of that, because, you know, then, then that's a whole different uh, uh, revenue. Uh, being a songwriter, whether you're a, uh, a, uh, an independent songwriter, let's say somebody that came in to write songs for the group or submitted a song for the group or, or a one, one of the group members that, that wrote the song. That's a whole different revenue stream. Uh, nothing gets recouped from, uh, from, from, from the record deal, from the, uh, from, let's say from the advances of making the record or, or, the, uh, or the video uh, uh, cost, you know. Uh, so definitely the group actually did look at their main income coming from, from touring and from merchandising. Yeah. Do you think it's, I mean, is it still possible to, to, to make a living or to be viable as a band today and just be able to be in one band? I mean, if you're not like ACDC or Iron Maiden or Metallica, yeah. who've kind of had a steady yeah. run for yeah. 30 years, is you it know, possible to be in one band? That is a really good question. Uh, I would I would say that it's possible to make one band a priority, which is kind of like the the uh, the, the 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 way that it's done today. It, 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 it's the, it's the I'm, I'm trying to find the right word to describe it. it it's more like the uh, the model that's been set up nowadays. Because this is what happened. Let's say back in the day. Uh, you know, whether it was the Quiet Riot or even Ozzy. Because with Ozzy, we tour like a year and a half because Blizzard was recorded. We, we uh, Tommy Aldrich and I joined the band. Then we toured for Blizzard. Then we came back. And Diary of the Mad Men was already recorded also before Tommy and I joined the band. So we took like a month off. Then we were back on the road promoting Diary. So we were on the road for actually almost a year and a half straight. And, of course, Randy Rhodes uh, passed away. Uh, yeah. In March, like almost uh, three months into the beginning of the uh, of the Diary of the Deathman's work. But what I'm trying to say is that way back then, you would tour for such a long time. You know, uh, records, records have a shelf life that do not have now. because there's no record stores. There's no radio promoting your, your music. Uh, then, let's say, the Choir Riot. We actually made two videos, but... The record had such a shelf life because it started out really low, and then by November it went to number one. So we actually kept touring as a headliner after being an opening act for like, you know, anybody from Loverboy to Scorpion to ZZ Top to Iron Maiden to Black Sabbath and so on. So we came back around again as a headliner. Uh, with Wisemate, there was a long shelf life because on that 87 record, there were four videos, which means that we were touring for about a year and a half. Uh, so the time, there was like three videos at least that I can recall. You know, so again, we were touring for a long time. Nowadays, the, the model is you actually tour for about five, six months, you know, and everybody comes out at the same time. Everybody comes out for the summer festival and sheds and packages and stuff like that. So it gets really, really uh, almost like gridlock, musical gridlock. 
in the summertime. And then everybody goes to Europe at the same time. Everybody goes to South America and and uh, in, in Asia, you know, Japan. And now uh, all the territories are opening up there, too, you know, like China and so on. So it's basically you tour for about five, six months tops. Then you have six months, <laughs> you know, to, to sit around. And I got to tell you this. Last year, I took a mandatory break for about two months. Yeah. And it was very weird for me to get back on the saddle again. It was like, oh, boy, I'm never doing this. It was, you know, because I just stayed home with my family. And then when it came back to rehearsal and being around people again, I felt I felt very strange. <laughs> I had lost all my social skills. <laughs> so I do not recommend that to anybody. So usually musicians, you know, this is what they do. You know, they either put together other projects just to keep themselves busy because this is what we do. We play music. We make music, you know. So it's become a new model. Yeah, you know, like, like for example, you know, Robert Trujillo, he's got Metallica. And then on the side, he's got Farmico, you know, with Joe yeah. it's, it's a project. It keeps him busy. It keeps him creative. Um, I've even seen him rehearsing with Jewish Hall Tendency. You know, again, you know, it keeps him busy. Uh, he's got the uh, the Jacob Asturias document, uh, documentary going. It keeps him busy. You know, it keeps him really fulfilled musically. Uh, what one of the reasons why I started teaching again is because again, it, it, it's a very rewarding, fulfilling experience to be able to do that. I'm not just sitting around uh, watching TV with my family. I've been productive. That's important. Well, I know you were working with Michael Lando for a while on Tread. Is that still happening? Because I'm dying to hear something from that. No, you know, as soon as uh, we lost AJ, that kind of like took the wind out of our sail. Yeah. Uh, AJ Perro, he was such an instrumental you know, part of the, of the band. So uh, hopefully, you know, the, the music will come out. Uh, just just for, because AJ plays so wonderfully on the record, and it would be great for people to actually hear him play like that, like, like what we did in Tread. Uh, but no, I, you know, I mean, I do look look forward to to seeing Michael again. Uh, we're doing the uh, we're doing a cruise together coming up in February. Actors and anchors, actors and anchors, and also we occasionally do the Randy Rose Remember too. Yeah, that's great, man. Hey, you know, you know, Rudy, I'm, I was still going through all the bands you played in, and and I was like, you know, you've really done bands that like some really temperamental, you know. <laughs> musicians, especially lead singers. Uh, at least that's the perception that most of the fans get like from the media. I mean, have you ever stepped into a band when you've heard certain things about like a member and then got there and said, you know, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It's a completely different person. Or did you just say, wow, what did I get myself into? <laughs> I got to get out of this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. In the case of Jeff K. Quintrack, you know, I heard certain things. Even though I, I've known Jeff since 1983 when Quintrack opened up for uh, for Quiet Riot, that was their first tour. Uh, it was actually for the EP Queen of Queen of the Reich, and we did like about three or four weeks run in the in the in the, in the Texas area. And I got to tell you, not only is he a phenomenal singer, I mean the guy, it's it's unbelievable. I never saw him complain about being on the road. I never saw him, you know, it, it was so it was a wonderful experience. Every night on stage, he was he gave a thousand percent. You know, uh, yeah. that, that was definitely one of those experiences. I, another one it was eBay. I, I got to tour with him for the American leg of the attack tour. Again, wonderful experience with him. So, you know, it all, it all depends. 
you know, individuals might have had certain individuals bad experiences with certain musicians, but it's all up to me, you know, to, to have the best experience possible to be there any band. True, true. I mean, nobody's going to get along with everybody all the time, and everybody's personality is different, and it's going to affect, you know, yourself when yeah. you're in a band. And, you know, I, I remember Off the Rails, what an amazing book. It's such a detailed documentary of your time with Ozzy. And I remember one time we were talking, you were saying that, like, I think Sharon gave you guys diaries at the beginning of the tour, and you kept notes of everything that went on. Is there more, I mean, not no, just no. the Ozzy, but is there more in, the, more in you for another book with A Quiet Ride and everything else? No, no. No, no, no. Sharon never gave anybody diaries at the beginning of the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what you might be talking about was that at the end of the blizzard of Oz, everybody received a leather-bound, uh, basically, a the date, the calendar. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yes, that was it. Yes. Of, of the date. Yeah, but that was like uh, after the two. I, I actually at the end at the end of the uh, blizzard of Oz because that that way we had a a, uh, a calendar. It was basically a, a compilation of the tour books, all of them okay. with reviews, with reviews that were serviced by the uh, uh, the publicity, department, you know, agency that was hired, you know, the publishers to do that. So yeah, I thought. I mean, that's that's a book that I that I actually used a lot as a resource because you know, I there were two things. There were my personal diary that I kept for tax purposes. Uh, you know, that was the first time that I actually made any money in my career. So my family accountant suggested that I keep a, a uh, an actual account of my expenses and, and touring, you know, experience, so I could submit that to the IRS. And uh, after that tour, I actually found different methods of doing it. So I really don't go into that much detail. I, I actually learned how to do it myself, you know, but that was the uh, that was the reason why I kept such detail uh, accounts on the tour, just just for tax purposes. Oh, okay. Do you have another book in you? I mean, is that something they like want to do? I mean, we would love to hear a whole story of Quiet Ride because that seems like there's a there's a couple of books in there. You know what? Frankie has done such a great job with the documentary that yeah. I I I think it's uh, the point is moot. Do you think the documentary really gives a good like overview of you know the whole band from start to finish? Uh, I mean, it's a documentary, so you cannot really put together a decade <laughs> of of information. I think it just it gets some great bullet points about about the history of Quiet Riot, and of course, it's not just a documentary about Quiet Riot; it's about a documentary about Frankie dealing with loss. And uh, and uh, and how to carry on, how to you know how to reinvent Quiet Riot in today's market. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a very it's a very deep documentary. Very, for me personally, very very hard to watch. Well, you're such a major part of the band throughout the whole career. I mean, I mean even when, I mean I remember seeing you guys when Quiet Riot first came to New York. I think it was 1983 at Lamore in Brooklyn with Talis opening up for you oh, guys. Yeah. I remember yeah. being at that show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And being blown away. And, and I, you know, that's how far back I go with you guys. So, I mean, it, when it did come to an end, at least when your participation band came to an end, did you see it coming or was it hard? Was it hard to walk away from it? No matter how bad things were, did you just feel you had to for your own sake? Uh, you know what? I don't know if it comes from my having, as, as, as a child, experience. Uh, because, you know, my first experience with walking away from something 
uh, was at a very early age. Uh, growing up in Cuba, being born in Cuba, growing yeah. up there, and my family deciding to leave Cuba because of the political climate. Uh, and they left everything behind. We moved to Miami, and then a couple of years later, we were part of a relocation program that moved us from Miami to New Jersey for always seeking a better life, a better condition, happiness, happiness, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, so at a very early age, I it was ingrained in my DNA to actually for the pursuit of happiness, if you need to move on, you just move on. You know, things will get better. You know, I mean, you have to make an educated decision. You just cannot just, you know, for the hell of it, do it. Uh, when I left Ozzy, remember, I, I left one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. You know, at its peak, just because it was very painful to go on stage, uh, to continue being a member of Ozzy after many died. You know, and I joined the complete unknown, <laughs> which was quite a riot at the time. So sure. it was not because any, anybody thought that the band was going to be big. No, I thought that the band was good enough to, to, for us to make a living and that we have potential. Yeah, obviously. We, we all felt that. Now, one thing is feeling it, another thing is being a reality. So when it got to be number one, it was as much of a shock and a surprise as everybody else. And then yeah. when, when the conditions, conditions again got to be very difficult for me to, uh, to, to be a, a member of the group, uh, I moved on. Not knowing that a couple of years later I was going to be part of the huge uh, ride of of white snake to the top. I didn't know that. I had no idea. But that's what happened, you know. So it's you know so you know I, I've learned that in life. First of all, you know you play music because you're pursuing happiness, the happiness of being a musician. But also being in a band. You know, you have to be happy with, with, it, with the people that you're making happiness with. Sure, <laughs> so, no, you're right. You know, some, some, yeah, sometimes when it gets to be a situation that you, that you feel you tried everything, you tried everything you can in your power to make things, you know, to make it into a happy environment, then, some, you know, you get to a point where, well, you know, it's, it's actually time, time to move on. And, and that's what happens. Hey, Rudy, I'm not going to keep you much longer. I appreciate you talking with me today. And you've moved on incredibly throughout your career. And I hope that you guys can get out on the road with Devil City Angels this year and uh, maybe do some shows over the East Coast. Absolutely. That would be great. Uh, we're really, 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 really looking forward to it. It's a great record. I can't wait to see the uh, reaction from the fans when the album gets released in September. And we're just waiting to see what's going to be our strong areas. So we can actually then concentrate on those and put together the initial tour and then spread out from there. So we're looking forward to a great, uh, you know, later part of 2016, uh, 15, and then the beginning of 2016 for Devil City Angels. That's going to be great. Rudy, I've seen you, I don't know how many times I've seen you live, and I'm looking forward to seeing you many more. So keep doing it, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you. Take care, Rudy. Bye-bye. Crank it up. I gotta tell you a little story. You ain't gonna believe this, man. Oh, I knew it's 
Uh, Thrust taking us into overdrive right before that. Devil City Angels. Like I said, it's some pretty good stuff. It's like that old uh, hard rock vibe to it from the from the seventies. Pretty cool, I have to say. And Rudy is definitely the man, no doubt about that. All right, well, you know what? We still have Chris Caffery from Sabotage and TSO in about 15 minutes or so. We'll get our music in between now and then. Tommy is gone, just going to show you his dedication to the show. As soon as the football game starts, he's there at the kickoff. And I don't know what the rush is because it's the Giants. They're probably going to lose anyway. But to each his own, we'll have to let him go. We'll get him back here next week. And what do we have coming up on the metal matinee this Thursday? Let me look up the the schedule over here. Oh, it's a trilogy this week. This week we're going to play uh, a song off an album by a band who had three great records, that first holy trilogy of their catalog, and then went to shit. And there's a lot of bands to choose from, so uh, we'll pick out enough to fill up an hour show. And uh, next week on the show, uh, Sunday night, we have Mike Melinger from Intrinsic. I'm looking forward to talking to Mike. We played a song off the new record Nails last week. It's actually an old new record, but uh, we got Mike on. And Juan Ricardo. Everybody who's a fan of the underground knows him from the band Attacks. He's in Summer Sky today. I believe Attacks is still going, too. Uh, we'll find out for sure next Sunday when we talk to him live. All right. What can we do for you right now? How about some, uh, I don't know. No, this is a band called Paradise. I know they were a New York band. I don't remember much about them. I don't think I've played this song since the mid-'80s when it came out. I'm not even sure if it's head metal, thrash, speed. I don't know what it is. Uh, I found it. I figured I'd throw it on here, and we'll... I guess we'll kind of listen to it together and see what it turns out to be. Here you go, Paradise. Hang them high. My hands are as I swear. Never let another woman take me down there.
uh, Savage Grace with Fight for Your Life of their first EP. I've been trying to find Chris Logue, the guitar player, who's actually the singer and guitar player later on in the band, to get him on the show. I remember all that the controversy years ago with him pretending to be a doctor. At least that was a story that was going around that he was arrested. Uh, he did have the band going, I think, around that time with all different members. He was the only constant in the band uh, until that happened or after that happened. I'm not sure. But he's like MIA completely. You can't find this guy anywhere. But if anybody does know where he is, let me know because I would love to have him on the show. Maybe I have to go back and look for some old uh, Savage Grace members from like back in the mid-'80s that all played together and uh, try to get them on the show. I mean, we had Kenny Powell on the show. I think the first year we were on in 2008, it was great talking to Kenny. Uh, maybe I'll get him back on here again. I know Omen is working on a new record, so maybe when it comes out, we'll wait till then and we'll uh, promote it. But it's been coming out of her uh, since 2008 when we first started doing this show, so it's been a long time. All right, you know what? we got to talk to Chris Caffery from Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Sabotage, and a lot of other bands. But one of my favorite albums that he put out was uh, with John Olive when he did Dr. Butcher. Uh, so let's get a song off of that record. We'll talk to Chris play something off his brand new solo record, which absolutely kicks ass, just like all his other ones. Man's an amazing guitar player. You got to give it up to him for that. All right, so from the first Dr. Butcher record, here's Season of the Witch.
Oh, man, that's such good stuff. You know, that's what later era sabotage should have sounded like. All right, let's talk to Chris Caffery. Hey, Chris, this is Mike. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, man. Real nice talking with you today. Absolutely, Mike. It's great to speak to you, too. Uh, hey, listen, you know, I'm a fan for so many years, so to see you this active after, you know, like almost 30 years in the business and 2015, a new, new solo record, TSO is getting ready to take off because we're in the fall season, Sabotage are playing again. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. I, I uh, have absolutely nothing to complain about other than the fact that the days move too quickly. I mean, it's about all I get out <laughs> Yeah, that seems to happen as we get older. Yeah, you know what? I I think uh, it's weird. It's just time seems to move at, at a different pace now. You know, it's like when we were younger, it seemed like there was nothing but time. And now it's just like you wake up and you turn around and, you know, it, it's it's early in the day, but it's noon, you know. So it's like <laughs> yeah. it's almost noon, you know. And you look at it, it's like, oh, wait, now that, that there's an hour less of sunlight. And it's just, it's just crazy how things change. It really is. You know what? I'm glad that we're all still here together doing this. That's the most amazing thing. I think, you know, hard rock and metal fans, I mean, they're like the most loyal, diehard fans you could have. I mean, if you latch on to them, you got them for life. Well, I mean, nothing against different types of music and styles of music and things like that. It's like, um, you know, the Backstreet Boys related to those fans at that age, you know, and, and, they might, it's kind of like being a Rick Springfield, a Rick Springfield fan. You, you listen to Jesse's girl, that kind of thing. It's like, it, it'll take you back to that moment when you heard it. But there's something about what we struggled with as kids and why we went to heavy metal music. I mean, it, it dug us out of our problems. And as life goes on, it's, it means more than just like that little particular moment. It was years and, and, you know, days and really hard struggles in your life that were overcome through that music. It, it wasn't just like that, you know, that time you're at the boardwalk and you heard this particular song and you jammed with your friends and you liked it. It was, it was part of your life. So 20, 30 years later, you listen to those songs and it brings back not only that moment, but it, it you know, the struggles and the emotions that you had you know, when those songs were a part of getting you through that. Yeah. No, that's so true. And, you know, but like one thing I say is like, I'll, I'll go back over your catalog, you know, since like the first solo record in 2004. And, you know, you can see the progression and the change. I mean, we could tell exactly where you are, like mood wise with your music. I mean, even though there's a consistency from album to album, it also shows like where you're at, like, you know, whether it's, you know, and you obviously write about how you feel and what's going on in the world around you. And you can see that from like the damn war, the houses of insanity to, you know, your heaven is real now. You can see that change in your music. You don't lock yourself into the same box all the time. Yeah, you know what? I, I do my solo records for a bunch of different reasons, and I it's definitely, you, you kind of speak through the music. You know, it's like people can say what they want to say about production, this, that, the other thing. It's like, you know what? If if, if you look back at, at a Black Sabbath catalog, I mean, you know, you can you can look at Born Again and, and, and try to A-B that with, with Mob Rules, and it's like, yeah, that's not going to be the same exact studio production, but it was Sabbath at that time. It's like, you know, the, the the thing about artists is we want to get our music out there. And 
you know, the, the way we, the way we challenge and the way we do it, it, that's our choice. It's like for people to analyze songs because of what the, the, the presentation is sonically is, is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit shallow. It's like saying if you had a great, a great drawing artist and he only had two colors, you know, if he was to do a picture, if that's all he had at that time, but he wanted you to see his picture, it's still his picture. And that's with me with these records. It's like, you know, I go into my different phases of my life and, and I make my music. And it's really important for me to be able to do that because it's like I don't get a chance in every band that I'm in to say or do what I want to do. And instead of me trying to force myself on those projects or get upset about it, I just do my stuff on my own. And it's it's very fulfilling for me. That is important to have this outlet. And like you were saying, you don't have that opportunity when you're in another band because there are different members that kind of all have a say, or you join a band that's established, and you're kind of like, you know, on the fence about how far you could push, you know, your agenda on them. And that is the great thing about a solo record, but what are the downsides about doing your own stuff? Are there any downsides to it, where it all falls into um, the hardest spot? It's, well, the hardest thing is that, you know, I've chosen to do these records this way. I mean, I could go and block out two weeks of studio time, a month of studio time, whatever it is, and pay to do my own record. I mean, it's like, yeah, there, there's there's a difference in the way you get budgets from record companies to stays and, and, and other things like that, because I've looked at some people that are like, you know, Discovery's doing it on his own because obviously he can't get the budget. It's like, look, I have a lot of money. I can do whatever I want. But the thing is, I choose to do it this way because... I don't really know what songs I want to put on my album. I write like 40, you know, and I, I get into the, my studio and my zone and I pick through them. And as time goes on, there might be a song one day that I decide is gone. And there might be a song one night that I write that I decide that's in. So by doing the records on my own, it's hard because I do a lot of work and it's tedious because my ears are tired. You know, I've spent a lot of years on a run. I have really bad tinnitus. So it's like, sometimes I struggle with frequencies and things like that. But at the end of the day, I'm able to choose, you know, when I start the clock, when I stop the clock, if I one day only want to work one hour, I work one hour. If one day I want to work 20 hours, I work 20 hours. I mean, that's the, that's the big difference I have by doing it on my own. It's like I control the environment and I can control you know, what goes there. Like I said, if you block out a week of studio time, when you go in there for those eight hours, you have to work those eight hours. Whether or not you like what you're doing or not, you, you're booking that studio. So creatively, it it sticks you into a hole, which is something that Paul did recently with, with TSO is he bought the studio that we recorded all the old Sabotage records with. The, the Moore Sound Studio Complex in, in Tampa is now Nightcastle Studios. So it's like, we have the ability with TSO to do the same thing to where you just, you're not on the clock and that makes it to where you're, you know, when you're an artist, it, it, it just opens your doors and makes things completely different for you. Like I said, it's difficult for me to do the records on my own because I'm doing all this work, but in the same respect, it's better for me because you know what, if I hear all of a sudden, you know, while I'm half asleep, I hear a new part of a song. I could run down in my studio. I could cut it. I could edit it. I could do whatever I want to it. That's the that's the the joy about doing it on my own. It's not easy. I you know like I said, I'd, I'd love to have a cloned little studio engineer that I could wake up and tap on the <laughs> shoulder and say, "Hey, let's go." But you know, unfortunately, that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, you were talking about Paul O'Neill, and then I, I say to myself, you know. 
if you could look back at everything from the first day you picked up a guitar professionally and started playing, I was like, Alan Fryer was a really good friend of the show, and we've had Alan on him many times. Oh, wow, yeah. Like, and, you know, Alan Fryer's a, yeah, a big reason why I'm where I am today. I know, and he, yeah. Paul O'Neill actually, I think, managed the band to work with Heaven, and look what these, like, do you believe, like, everything happens for a reason? Yep. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, with, without a doubt. And, and I even told people, to, you know, they uh, they asked me about my career and where I got. I said, you know, I, it, life is all about the moment and what you make happen. It's like I went out when I was younger with my brother and we hung out in nightclubs and we went to concerts and went to shows. And, and if it wasn't for the fact that um, the drinking age was 19 yeah. in New York when I was a kid... I probably wouldn't be where I am today because what had happened was the drinking age was 19 in New York and my brother was 19 when it changed to 21. I was 17. And at that point in time, you didn't have legal um, photo ID on your driver's license. Your driver's license was a piece of paper. It wasn't okay. Yeah. <laughs> so at, at the age of 17, I had legal ID to get into all these bars and clubs. And that's where I met people and made my connections. And it was, you know, you retired, you, you, you drove an hour. I lived an hour and a half out of the city at that time, but I would go in New York city five nights a week and I'd be everywhere that you were quote unquote supposed to be. And yeah. that's how I met people like Alan Fryer that led me to people like Paul O'Neill and that, that built the stairway that became my career. And, is is like I said the reason why we're we're still talking thirty years later. I mean it, it was thirty years in this August since I started working with Paul. Incredible, it's crazy. It, yeah, it really crazy. is. And, and you know, I mean, you've openly for years talked about you know you know dying to get sabotaged, you know, back together and playing again. You know, it was always John's thing, and when he was ready to do it, it would happen. It happened this year, I think, the first time in probably a decade. And not only that, but with TSO to get, it was like an amazing event. And you know you also have, and you've also talked about like how you felt like you made a lot of mistakes over the years with sabotage early on by going in and out of the group at different times. And I can see being like a young kid in the band and wanting that opportunity. And in the very beginning, I guess it kind of treated you like a heavy metal keyboard player, but keeping you off to the side of the stage for years. And that probably really affected you big time back then. And it maybe made the decisions for you about going in and out. But all those years later, do you, does it still bother you now, or is it something you just move away from? You know, the only thing that bothers me, there's only one thing that's always going to bother me, and that's why I see the Streets record cover. I can look at any Sabotage record cover that I wasn't involved with in that period of time, Edge of Thorns, Handful of Rain, whatever, and be fine with it. When I see the Streets record cover, and I see people's faces on that, and I see the thing where the, the diehard, like, this is Sabotage people point that out is that was the band. It's like, I should have been in that photo. And if my face was amongst, you know, if that four faces on that record were five with mine, my legacy would be different. And that's the only thing that bothers me. It's like, I'm not, you know, you make decisions. Like you can't, you can't look back. It's like, yeah, I know what I did. And, and I do regret certain things, but the only thing that bothers me is that street cover, the streets album cover, it, it, till the day I die, it's going to haunt me that I'm not on that record cover. Yeah. Well, it, but if you do look back at, at that time, I mean, that's when the band started to morph and change from Gutter Ballet on. I mean, there were a lot of fans, I think, they're like two versions of Sabotage, the pre-Gutter you know, Ballet era and the post one. 
And, you know, when you guys played live a while ago, you focused more on, on the post era of the stuff, uh, the Zach Stevens stuff and the John stuff. And people felt like when, when Chris passed away, when he died, that you were like the heir apparent to the band, even though they had Al Petrellian and a few other people. Uh, they feel like you were the one that should have been the guitar player for Sabotage after that, and, and the only guitar player. And they felt like you were a yeah, actually, so, so did I at that point. You know, there was, <laughs> unfortunately, there was um, business aspects to it, and and things happened the way they did. And, and, you know, I don't even know if I was personally or musically ready to take that on at the time. And I'm kind of glad that... Um, that I got to to the position I was in because those years that I spent um, working my way back, that's when I woodshed it. You know, that's when I really sat there and I looked in the mirror and I'm like, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I, you know, I was like, well, I want to be a guitar player. And this is what I got to do to make sure that happens for a long time. And I sat and I played and I played and I played and I played. So, you know, I couldn't control what people decided to do at that time. But what I could control is making sure that, you know, now 25 years later, we're having this conversation because I don't, you know, I could have like, I could have bailed out at that point and just said, this is really frustrating. But now I ran my freaking credit cards. I had really good credit at the time. I ran them into the ground paying my bills with credit cards, taking cash out with credit cards, paying credit card bills with credit cards. And I ran myself like to the point of, it wasn't, you know, like non get outable hole, but I had a huge financial hole and, and the one thing I didn't do that, that the rest of America should stand up and pay fucking attention to is I paid my own debts. I didn't claim bankruptcy. I didn't call my niece to anybody. I went and I said, you know what? I need help. I'm going to get it wherever I can. And when I get out of this, I'm going to pay it back, you know, and I'm going to take the interest and I'm going to pay these bills and I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to make my life work. And I did. Chris, uh, you know, TSO is sort of born out of sabotage in one way or another. Did you see it coming, like how big this was going to be? Because you got to consider Nobody saw it coming but Paul. We're a metal band. And he saw it coming from the second I started working with him. He was always talking about having this band. This is even before the name Trans Siberian Orchestra surfaced. Before I even knew there was a sabotage, Paul was talking about this having this thing that had like limitless creative possibilities you know you have a band that could have 50 people or two people on the stage and 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 work and he made it happen and i remember i tell people when we were doing the uh i think we were about ready to go on the um dead winter dead tour or wake me jive from one of the sabotage tours and i'm on the phone with paul and he's talking about tso and it's just getting off the ground and he's on the phone with me speaking like things are happening as they're and and when we had Lion Madison Square Garden and I was like we hadn't even done a show yet we hadn't even played one single live show yet and Paul speaking in the and when Trans Siberian Orchestra had Lion Madison Square Garden I mean that's the vision that was there from this individual and he made it all happen he's he's got that kind of that 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 creative and artistic vision and he makes it happen. I mean, that's, then that's the same kind of thing. You know, Paul's mortgaged the farm several times to make things happen. And that's those risks that, that people take when they really are passionate and they really believe in something. And, you know, we all knew it could, it could be big, but as an artist, you don't really know where it's going to go. Paul, like I said, 
He was like, and when Trans-Siberian Orchestra plays stadiums, well, we just played in front of 80,000 people. It's a stadium-sized crowd. It's like he had a vision of this and followed it through. And it's it's just great when you see the smile on Paul's face when we do these things and he sees this come alive. It it makes me really proud that I'm able to be, you know, still be a soldier in that army after all these years. Yeah. You know, people like Paul are rare because you don't have a lot of people that are so dedicated and so willing to follow through with what they say and do in this business. It's a it's a brutal business. But having someone oh like God, that yeah. in the corner, does that make it much easier for you as an artist to really focus on being an artist and the music where you know, hey, Paul's got my back. He's gonna If this is workable, he's going to make it happen. Well, it, it makes you... It makes you relax knowing, like, every year... I don't, like, sit there and go, oh, my God, what am I going to do next year? You know, I know that Paul O'Neill's already going, oh, my God, what are we going to do next year? And he already has that part of worrying about life covered because, you know, Trans-Siberian is his his baby, and it's like, you know, he's worried about, you know, what the kids are going to be wearing next year in school before the school year starts. That's basically it. I mean, he's... He's got everybody's back. There's hundreds of people working for Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and he has all their backs. And all those people every year turn around and go, all right, well, I know October, November, December, I'm doing this with TSO, and, and, and the, the office people know they're working. I mean, it's like he, it, it's it's one of these things where you're, you sleep a little bit better at night because it's not that point where you're going, oh, my God, you know, if, if we don't do this, this is going to happen. We already know that it's going to happen. When we finish this year's TSO tour, next year's TSO tour is already being booked. Yeah. That, that's, that's a, that is important to have that kind of support system. You, you know, Chris, I, when you're a kid and you're in the business and you, you, know, you want to start a band, you kind of think that, you know, I'm going to find four friends or four guys or five guys. I'm going, to, I'm going to start a band and we're going to make it happen. We're going to work our way to the top. We're going to play Madison Square Garden. Do you think the day of like one man and one band is kind of over? I mean, at least for hard rock and metal, is it for any band to start today? and have a shot to get to Madison Square Garden? Or is that kind of a dead dream for our genre of music? You know, that's really, it's it's just hard to say. I mean, I think bands could get there, but do I think there'll be the same type of um, vision to the people that are fans? No. I mean, there could be, nowadays there could be 20,000 people watching a band at an outdoor festival, and they could get 20,000 people everywhere they go. And these kids are there to see that band name and to see that song. I don't think these kids are there going, you know, I know what Ian Hill's sneakers look like, you know. It's like we knew every member of every band. We knew everything about them. We would buy Cream Magazine, Hit Parade, or Circus, and we would look at these individuals, and we didn't have the Internet. So this paper and these these record sleeves and these, these – this was our Internet, and we would live and follow that in these, in these magazines. And, and I think that – Bands could get to the point of headlining the garden. I just don't think the people on the stage, other than a lead singer and maybe a guitar player, are ever going to be rock stars again. Whereas, you know, Carl Palmer was a rock star, Neil Peart was a rock star, Peter Chris was a rock star, uh, it's just, you know, Steve Harris was a rock star. I don't think you're going to turn around and, and say, 
you know, Joe, Joe, whoever it is from this band. Oh my God, he's my favorite bass player. I want to be him when I grow up. I think that the other instruments of the band are just going to become like pieces as time goes on. I, I don't, I don't see the kids talking about the bass player in Avenged Sevenfold like it's Nikki Six. Yeah, because I can't, I can't name the bass player in Avenged Sevenfold, but I can name Nikki Six. You know, I mean, it, it, that's just the way it is. I can name Duff McKagan. I can't name the bass player in the biggest new band there is. You just, it, it's that's what's happened. We've lost the individuality of the people in the band. Yeah, well, I mean, like like the heydays were the '80s for our music. Obviously, it kind of died down in the '90s when grunge took over, and a lot of other styles came in. And now, and now it's found its way back again, even on even on a smaller scale. You know, it's still popular now, and you see a lot of younger kids now that are like they weren't even born back then. They seem to be more into it than people that grew up with the music. Yeah, well, I mean, the the kids now it, it's kind of like discovering a history book. You know, you're looking at all these things and, and you're fine. I mean, I wish that I was an eight-year-old kid and I could look back and, and realize that, okay, heavy music is what I like. And and all of a sudden discover this thing called Judas Priest. You know, it's like I there wasn't a Judas Priest when I started listening to music. You know, I wanted Judas Priest to be there. I liked heavy music. That's what I wanted to exist. So I think that... Um, for for the kids nowadays, being a heavy fan, it's like you just discover this whole, you know, you discover four decades almost of metal music. You know, you've got the 70s, the 80s, the 90s as metal was born. It were, it's it's 40 years, you know, of, of, of metal that these kids just all of a sudden find. So I think it's it's got to be exciting when you look at all these albums. I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of records. And I mean, imagine being a kid just trying to build his collection up. I mean, unfortunately people aren't buying the music the same way they did, which is hurting us as the artists, but at least it's there. That's true. Yeah. Like, you know, I remember reading somewhere they were saying, well, the new Judas Priest record, the last one that came out, you know, I sold 5,000 copies the first week and it was very disappointing. And they were talking about that. I'm like, you know, I sold 5,000 copies, but there were probably 100,000 copies that were downloaded illegally. You know, and oh, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. the music exactly. business goes by sales. They want to know how much money you're going to make for me. They don't care that people have it for free. Yeah, I know. That, that's, that's what I said. That's another big reason why. I do my records the way I do them because I don't want to turn around and listen to somebody going, you know what, this isn't doing that or this could do better. Or this. It's like I I just want to play my music and be happy. You know, if I was to walk away tomorrow and never play a note again, I have a career that most people would dream about already. You know, so it's like I the last thing I want is some freaking – stubborn, frustrated business person trying to ruin my day. I just don't. I don't even need that. Chris, the new record, uh, you're going to be able to get out and do a little bit with it? Or I know this is probably going into like the no, biggest time of the year. No, absolutely. I'm looking at that now. I'm, I'm trying to piece together um, a plan and who I want to use. And I'm going to do some live stuff next year. Obviously, before um, the TSO tour starts this year, it's a little bit too crammed. It's less than two months. And um I have a lot of things going on, but once I once I see solidly what our schedule is going to be like next year, I'll get a better idea of, of um, when I can book some shows, and I'm definitely going to play. 
Oh, man, that'd be great. You, you know, people always expect you to put out like these old solo records. They don't realize that they're just, they're just classic metal albums. You know, you got a lot going on, but they expect you to just do like all instrumental stuff because of your talent as a guitar player. Yeah, you know what? That's the funny thing. I think that um, it's just a personal opinion of mine. I think my singing's fine, you know, and it's getting a lot better. But if I was to be, you know, Chris Caffrey, the unknown and I would put this record out, people would be like, oh, my God, this guy's a great singer. Because I'm a guitar player, they're like, oh, you know, he sings pretty good for a guitarist. And people want to hear you do instrumental music. It's like, I walk on stage with TSO, and I play two hours of instrumentals. You know, it's like I do a lot of vocal songs with them, too, but it's like we play instrumentals. And a lot of what it is that I do is instrumental music. It's like I wanted to do with my solo records, I want to be able to speak through the songs other than just going, hey, watch me masturbate on my guitar. It's like, you know, I could, I could sit there and, and woodshed myself to death and, and play the perfect arpeggio and give somebody this instrumental song that, you know, is going to be critically taken as the greatest guitar piece ever. And I wouldn't get the same satisfaction as an artist as I do doing a three-chord acoustic ballad speaking what I'm feeling. Instead, You know, it's like, that's not speaking what I'm feeling. That's kind of showing you what you did. It's like being a master builder and going, Hey, come look at this house I just built. You know, that there's a difference between that. It's all a form of expression. It's a form of art, but it's what you get out of it. And for me, the singing became the most fun for me. This is the most fun I have with these solo records is the singing. And I'm glad you're doing it. You know, cause I remember, I, I don't, I think it was like right before Marty Friedman, I heard that you were actually going to try out for Megadeth or you were in talks to join Megadeth. When you look back at that now and Dave Mustaine's history, do you think it was a blessing in disguise that you didn't, that you didn't go for that or, or it didn't happen? Um, you know, I don't really know if I could say it was a blessing in disguise. My career definitely went in a different way. What was going on? It was like, Jeff Young was out of Megadeth, and Megadeth was looking for another guitar player, and I knew them well from being on the road with them. And I submitted demos, and they all really liked the demo in the band. And but at the time, Dave and Dave, the two Daves, they were going through some, you know, some personal problems, and they needed to step away from the business for a while. And I really didn't have a guarantee if there was actually going to be a Megadeth when they they got back, you know, out of out of taking care of themselves and, and I'm glad they both did and I'm glad, you know, they're they're doing fine. But Sabotage called me in that interim and said, Hey, we want you to join. So I had gutter ballet and, and Sabotage going, We want you and or I had the, the the possibility of waiting for for um for Megadeth and that that was something that I, I I didn't want to take that gamble. And actually, you know what? I I, I think I'm running over my time because Munzee's calling me on the other line, and I think I <laughs> might be running into my next interview. All right. You got it, Chris. <laughs> and look, I appreciate you talking with us today, man. And the best All luck right. you can And I'll catch you live when you come around to New York this year. All right. Thank you. Bye. Take care. <laughs> All right. We have to end that one right now. Three hours, three interviews. What a great way to celebrate our seven-year anniversary. You know, even with three hours, we still only have like a minute left in the show, and I won't be able to get on a new tune off of Chris's record, Your Heaven is Real. It's an amazing record. But what I will do is, as we close out in the next minute, I'll start the song, and you can hear the whole thing in the podcast later on after the show is over. But I want to thank everybody for listening to this show for the last seven years, whether you played it for one second, one minute, 
a one hour. I want to say thank you. I want to thank all the PR and press people like there with the marketing firms who help book all these great guests for me week after week on the show. I can't thank you enough. And more important than that, Tommy, my co-host, my wife, and my kids will tolerate my nonsense all week with this shit. But more importantly, my heavy metal mayhem minions, Chiron, Iman, and John, who hang out in the chat room with me every week and make this show fun. If it wasn't for you guys, I think I would stop doing it. So don't stop coming in because I don't want to stop doing the show. <laughs> so thank you guys very much for being a great big part of this program. I do appreciate it. Let's wrap it up here tonight. Well, like I said, we'll close out with uh, something off the new record from Chris, and uh, you'll have to hear the whole thing back later on in the podcast. So here you go. I'm out of breath. I'm tired of talking. <laughs> Here's arm and a leg off the brand new Chris Caffery record. Your heaven is real. Catch the rest later, guys. Take care. Fuck! Like-
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.